A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can you hear me on the phone? I've got you coming out of every orifice. (laughs) I'm really not, you're breaking up quite badly. Hello and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. We're going to talk today about something truly universal. You can be a rapper, a judge on Strictly, a gardener, a pigeon fancier, a prostitute, a priest or a nurse. The only certainty we all have is that one day we'll die. Most of us are scared of dying, but I want to introduce you to someone for whom it's an everyday, sorry for this, fact of life. Rachel Clark is a medical doctor, one of the small minority who choose to specialise in palliative care, which means she works every day with people who are very seriously ill, doing what she can to ease their passing. She's written about it in a book called Dear Life, Rachel, we originally made this appointment to talk about your book, Dear Life. And of course, you know, events have moved on since then. We're in the middle of another lockdown. And presumably you must have a terrible workload. Can you tell us what you do? Yes. So um, I'm a palliative care doctor working in the NHS. So I work in a a little hospice in Oxfordshire called Catherine House Hospice and I work on the inpatient unit so with really sick patients who are um, approaching the end of their life and I also work in the local hospital which is a district general hospital called the Horton in Banbury and I can be anywhere there I can be in the critical care unit on the wards Um, caring for anybody who needs the specialist input, really, of a palliative care doctor. So it is pretty horrendous right now. It's an unusual thing to choose to want to do with your life. Most doctors want to put people back together again, and you're reconciling them to the fact that they're not going to be put back together again, aren't you? Yes, um, and I think... It's, that's often really hard for people to understand because if you think about the kind of glamorous high status end of medicine, it's definitely the the sort of brain surgery end. Uh, I'm not sure any kid sort of starts out thinking, I want to go into medicine to help people 
die with with dignity and, and comfort. Um, but I uh, I always wanted to be a doctor for really simple reasons. I didn't care about glamour or status or any of those things. I, I, I just did want to help patients and it became abundantly clear to me from the very earliest um, weeks of medical school almost that there was an enormous problem with how people were dying in Britain, in hospitals, in other environments. And if you become a doctor because you want to help people and you want to try and alleviate suffering, then um, palliative medicine is an incredibly important specialty and you can do so much good for patients and with patients without any of the sort of seductive kudos of of operating on their brains or open heart surgery and uh, that's what I was really interested in. I, I think also I naturally am someone who is really on the side of the underdog so if there's a particularly vulnerable group of patients uh, in in the NHS those were the patients I always wanted to be working with and there are many such groups so elderly people with mental health problems people with disabilities and people at the end of life are incredibly vulnerable they often don't have a voice they aren't heard they're too ill they're too sick to to advocate for themselves and it's not a glamorous part of medicine and that's exactly why I wanted to do it. Have you decided what a good death is? Well, it's, I think the language around the subject of death and dying is is really interesting. And um, there's a lot of discussion about various words and phrases being helpful or unhelpful. So a lot of people will say, you must never use euphemisms. You mustn't say passing away or losing somebody. You must use the D word. And personally, I think that's nonsense. I think that people, we should respect whatever language people choose to use and feel comfortable with. I think it's really important for doctors to use language very clearly and unambiguously. But I would never presume to tell anyone what language they should use. And I, I think... This idea of a good death is one of those phrases that I have problems with. It's often bandied around as though there's this kind of mythical good death with a capital G and a capital D that is attainable for all of us if only we do it in the right way. A bit like a sort of lifestyle choice, like having a, a kind of perfect um, interior design in your house and in a way, I think in a really profound way, there is no such thing as a good death, by which I mean being a human being, this creature who knows from the outset that we are mortal and every single thing and every single one, every person that we love in the world, we are going to have to relinquish, we are going to have to lose them one way or another, when we die or when the people we love die. There's nothing good about that. There's nothing, you can't pretend that that isn't an enormous existential fate to come to terms with. Um, you can't wrap that in cotton wool. So there isn't something easy about dying. 
in that sense. But I think the things that people are often most frightened of, terrible symptoms at the end of life, pain, indignity, suffering, those are things that we can really make a difference um, on. So there's a kind of, there's, I think there's necessary suffering that is attached to being a mortal human being. And we shouldn't pretend we can sugarcoat that or diminish it. And then there is suffering that's unnecessary, that medicine um, and good nursing and, and, and good palliative care can alleviate. What is good palliative care? What have you done for patients that you're prepared to share with us? Well, I'm prepared to share everything. Um, there's nothing, there's a lot of secrecy and kind of taboo and stigma around the subject of death and dying. And people often think that uh, stepping into a hospice must be this horrific ordeal. It will be this ghastly, dark and dismal place full of suffering. And actually, I felt like that as a, a medical student and as a junior doctor, sometimes on call as a very junior doctor, I would have to go into the local hospice on our hospital site and see patients in the middle of the night. And I would always be nervous about doing that. I'd think, I'd think, please just let me have a crash call to a straightforward heart attack. I can deal with that, but I don't want to go to the hospice because I was scared of, of dying patients. I didn't really know how to behave around them. Um, but actually, what we do is, it, it's just a continuation of what all good medicine should be, in my view, in a really fundamental way. Um, and people who are dying are not different to ordinary people who are living. So dying is a lived experience, and my patients are just like any other patients. So... Some of what we do is is kind of hard nuts and bolts medicine. So we will talk to a patient about their symptoms and figure out the pharmacology, what drugs might help, what interventions might help. Is there some radiotherapy or a procedure that could help this patient um, alleviate their pain, for instance? So there's that kind of hard medical side. And then there's another side, which in some ways is almost more important, which is really trying to understand at this point in this individual's life what matters to them what is important because even if you are in your last months weeks days even hours of life most people the vast majority of people have things that are still important to them and still matter to them so I always ask that question what's most important to you and I will say our job is to help you enable you to experience or or achieve what's important to you and that's the only thing that matters literally the doctor's agenda doesn't matter and that might be anything from um, making sure that somebody gets um, a really nice massive measure of their favorite single malt whiskey every evening or it might be setting up a romantic date night with um you know, I can remember one with a um, a woman um, who was dying of cancer and we arranged a, a little date night as a surprise for her with her husband with, um, you know, a little NHS plastic table covered with a white linen tablecloth and rose petals um, and little glasses of champagne of which she could only manage one sip because she was so unwell. And that was magic for her and magic for him and it wasn't 
wasn't really medicine it was just understanding what mattered to those people sometimes we'll do things that are a little bit outlandish so once we had a a farmer who was dying of cancer and he his kind of dying wish was what he really wanted to do was see his prize winning bull one more time so even though that was definitely breaking a lot of the hospital's health and safety rules we got uh, a, a tractor and a trailer to drive from the farm with this enormous bull in the back into the hospital grounds around to the hospice so that he could come through into the garden and see his bull one last time and I just love that you know I, I love the hard medicine I love helping people using my medical degree but that's the thing that really gives me a kick and it's just about humanity and hearing people and figuring out what really matters to them and it's and it's easy and it's and it's wonderful Rachel you're talking about kindness yes um I think there's I don't know if you've read uh the book Wonder by AJ I don't know how you pronounce her surname Palaccio or Palaccio but it's um it's an incredible book that's about the importance of kindness. It's a it's a it's a book set in a school about a, a child with a, um, a deformed face, and the teacher, who's the, one of the main characters in this book, teaches uh, the teenagers um, kind of moral precepts. And his most important moral precept is: if you have a choice between doing what's right and what's kind, then choose kind. And to my mind, that's pretty much the most important piece of advice you can give any any kid who's growing up. Um, it's really hard to be kind in the NHS because it is underfunded, understaffed, everybody's overwhelmed. And that was true even before the pandemic began. So it's particularly um, overwhelming to try and be kind now. Um, but it is the most important thing. And I think even if you are the world's most brilliant neurosurgeon, if you make your patient feel diminished or, or humiliated or not heard or not respected, then you're still not a good doctor and you need to pull your socks up. You have to, as a doctor, try and see things from your patient's point of view because you have all the power as a doctor, patients, I mean, you've probably been a patient, I've been a patient, it's a scary experience being a patient, you're at your most vulnerable. And um, we have to, everybody in healthcare has to try and hold on to that kernel of kindness, no matter how challenging the circumstances you, you work in, because if you lose that, you need to step away from healthcare. You mentioned the pressure that the NHS is under now as a consequence of this uh, outbreak of COVID-19. Um, do you have a solution for that? Apart from everybody paying a lot more tax? Well, <laughs> I think that uh, it's not a binary question. It's not either we need better funding or we need to overhaul the, the the structure of the NHS we need to do both so if you're running a health service on a shoestring then 
clearly it's not going to work well, it's not going to be effective. And over the last 10 years, you know, we've had austerity budgets and the NHS has been run into the ground. Um, and if you look at the statistics for the proportion of GDP that we spend on health versus, um, for instance, Germany, France, it's it's lamentably low. And, and, and that, of course, means when we went into this pandemic, we were short of 40,000 nurses and 10,000 doctors. So we were already fighting to keep going even before COVID. Um, so I do think the funding is incredibly important. I also think that um, clearly there are many ways in which we can improve and transform the NHS and you'd have to be a Luddite to insist that everything is working perfectly and, and there's no way of, of um, ensuring the service is as good as it possibly can be for the money we spend. And COVID is a really good example of um, a, a catastrophe that is having positive benefits in the same way that the Second World War, you know, uh, uh, ushered in all kinds of new technology radar, the First World War ushered in antibiotics. So now we're doing a lot of our consultations remotely. We're using video consultations and we've kick-started the way we're using technology in the NHS, which probably, I imagine, will end up leading to efficiency cost savings. So um, I would like to see both, but I do believe very, very fundamentally that at all costs, we need to preserve an NHS in which care is delivered, not to increase the profits and line the pockets of private shareholders and people seeking to make a, a, a money from people's illness. I think that having a health service whose core value is providing healthcare according to need, not according to status or power or income, is just about the finest thing we have in British society. And I would sort of, I would scream that from my grave. But you do want people to pay more taxes. Yes, yes. I think that um, one, one of the problems with both the NHS and also social care in Britain is that uh, all politicians, whatever party, Labour, Conservative, um, kind of want to have their cake and eat it when it comes to the NHS and actually so so does the British public. So um, politicians never go into a general election wanting to say we're going to put up taxes because clearly they're worried they won't get votes if they do so. So we have this ridiculous dance where all politicians say that they love the NHS and it's very precious to them and it's terribly important, but actually we never need to um, fund it through greater taxation. And of course that's nonsense. You get the health service you pay for and if we, the British people, aren't willing to pay more for high quality health care for everyone, then we are going to get the health service we deserve. And I would love to see a, a politician or a political party who was mature enough to stand up and make that simple point, because we all know it's true. We can all pretend that we can have world-beating healthcare on a shoestring, and we all know that's absolute nonsense. So, so why not 
just be grown up about it and have that conversation. Even Boris Johnson tells lies about the NHS, doesn't he? He says it's the greatest in the world and then he refuses to fund it. You say even, Boris Johnson, as though that's surprising. He's the Prime Minister! (laughs) Yes, well, yeah, and um, if you look at um, his some of his proclamations over the last year with COVID, um, there have been one or two more, you may call them lies or you may call them uh, perverse exaggerations, but we've had quite a few. We've had the promise of the world beating test and trace. We were told way back last spring that this this would all be done and dusted within 12 weeks. We'd send coronavirus packing. It was all absolute nonsense. And uh, they might not have been... um, uh, knowing lies, but they were certainly based on no substance whatsoever. But with the health service, yeah, he tells a lot of lies about the health service. He he got elected this time round on a promise of building 40 new hospitals. And if you actually drilled down into that promise, you discovered actually it was only six hospitals he was planning to build and all the others were little upgrades of existing hospitals. So that kind of thing goes on all of the time. But on the big question about is the NHS world beating um, and, and is he going to provide it with more money? I think the answer in one profound sense is 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 no on both of those counts. And it's really important for people who love the NHS to be honest about its limitations as well. So if you take cancer care, for instance, our cancer performance is not good internationally. It's not good and it's no surprise it's not good because we don't have the same number of CT scanners, MRI scanners as everyone else. We have a very small number of radiologists compared to many other countries. So. We can't insist that things are absolutely world-class when they're not. We need to be honest and say, here are the problems and this is what we need to do to fix them. And if the British public isn't willing to fund that, then the British public is going to have to accept we're doing the best job we can. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you think that COVID could give a bit of a kick up the backside to politicians and to the NHS generally? Um, I would love to believe that. And I think in the first wave of the pandemic, there was quite a lot of kind of utopian thinking that this was, you know, this this pandemic, this global crisis was going to somehow reset everything and we would all acquire this extraordinary wisdom through adversity that we would carry forth into the future. I, I'm really not sure we have seen much evidence of that on the part of um, politicians particularly. Um, if there's one thing you learn as a doctor, it's that the words you use with your patients are incredibly important because uh, if your patient doesn't trust you, then you're nothing as a doctor. So you have to be honest. You have to say the difficult things when they need to be said, even if you find it really hard to look someone in the eye, you know, a young woman, a young mother, and say, I'm sorry, you're not going to survive your cancer. It's terminal. You have to have those conversations unflinchingly. And what I dearly would have loved to see over the last year with coronavirus is politicians actually doing the same and looking the public in the eye and not going for the easy populist, you know, everything's going to be great, all right, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear approach, but to be honest and candid and and say the difficult things that need to be said. Uh, sometimes I feel as though Boris Johnson has treated his coronavirus press conferences like just another appearance on Have I Got Use For You? And that's just not good enough. He should be saying the difficult things because the public need to hear them. And I think the public want to hear them. They're sick of um, over-promising and under-delivering. So that's the wisdom I'd love to have seen accrued in this last terrible year, but I'm not sure it has been. Instead of which, we have the public being told all the time by Boris Johnson and his friends, you've got to stay at home, wash your hands, protect the NHS. Lockdown. The public don't like that. No, no. Um, but in a way, I would say, isn't that what you learn when you're a teenager you, you you learn as you grow up that you can't to use you know the words of Mick Jagger you can't always get what you want you have to do things you have to put up with things that are hard and that's just part of real life no one wants lockdown we'd have to be perverse to like lockdown it's horrible it's hideous um my but kids sorry there were alternatives weren't there um that in the sense, I, I to some extent, so if we had used last year to build up an, a functioning test and trace system, for instance, then that would help because that's the way you reduce transmission of an infectious disease. Um, but I'm not sure there was ever any alternative to lockdown uh, when you're facing a new disease that is highly, highly infectious, for which there are no treatments, no vaccines, 
whatsoever and which is transmitted very, very easily through proximity from one of us to another, the only alternative to lockdown would have been to allow the virus to transmit unimpeded through the population. So, so that is an alternative in a sense, and that's what all the signatories to the Great Barrington Declaration signed up to. They advocated letting COVID rip through the population until we somehow acquired herd immunity. The cost of that, though, would have been probably deaths in the order of hundreds of thousands of British citizens. So we're already approaching a death toll of 100,000. We've, we've now recorded COVID as a cause of death um, on the death certificates of over 92,000 British people. So the only alternative to lockdown was to accept a, a death toll many times more than that. Um, the, the early data talked about 500,000 as an estimate. Um, and that was sort of, um, that, that has been um, criticised as an exaggeration, as scaremongering, but we're already nearly at 100,000 and that's with lockdown. So to my mind, the only alternative to lockdown was something hideously unpalatable because I don't want hundreds of thousands of people in my country to die unnecessarily. Well, there was targeted protection, wasn't there? Targeted protection, I think, is a weasel phrase. I think it sounds vaguely plausible and it's nonsense. How do you actually shield the most vulnerable um, millions of people in British society? So um, we were promised at the start of the first wave promised over and over again by the government and actually by the scientific advisers as well that Britain's most vulnerable citizens would be shielded, they would be protected and we know what happened. Uh, the virus was allowed to run rampant through care homes and over 20,000 residents of care homes died, most of them in the course of a month. Um, you can't shield everybody who's vulnerable because that means they can't have any contact with anyone else. And this isn't just the elderly. This is children with cystic fibrosis. It's it's young adults with a rheumatological condition. It's 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 whole swathes of British society and they can't be shielded if they have to interact with other people. Nobody has ever explained how practically you actually shield all of those millions of people. So really, I think underlying those weasel words, as I would describe them, is something very unpalatable, which people aren't willing to, to voice clearly and honestly. And that is this as the alternative to lockdown. The alternative to lockdown is to say, I am happy to divide up the British population into two categories of people. There is category A, the people that I think are young enough and economically productive enough to be worth saving. So we will invest time and effort and money into saving them. And then there's category B. And the people in this category category are dispensable. We can just we can just dismiss them, we can allow them to die. They're not worth saving. And I just think that that approach is 
hideous. It's it, 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 it's it's really unspeakable because your value as a human being doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're economically productive. And once you go down that route of carving up people into categories of of dispensable or worth saving, you've gone down a route I don't think many people would want to sign up to. So it's lockdown or nothing? Well, what would you say the alternative is? Targeted protection. But how do you define that? What is that? Well, it it allows the individual to make a judgment about whether it is worth taking a risk or not. Instead of which, Boris Johnson takes it for you. No, because that only works if, if you're viewing what we're doing through the perspective of you as an individual making a choice about what you do or do not want to do. But the point is, we're not atoms. We, we, we don't all exist in, in disparate little spheres in society. Your actions, are, you, you could be perfectly happy to take risks that, that kill you and, and, and that's your, your right. Um, my mum, who is very vulnerable because of her age, takes, takes a similar view um, and many people do. They think I've got the right to do something reckless if I want to. I can I can run around an old people's home licking everybody if I want to. That's my right. Fine. But if you do that, the effect of your recklessness is to endanger other people. So you have to think about the effects of individuals on people who are more vulnerable than you, more exposed to risk. How would you feel if your decision to take risks led to the child with cystic fibrosis who's immunosuppressed dying of COVID because you felt it it was your right to not wear a mask in the supermarket? That's a very good answer, if you'll forgive me. I accept that. (laughs) Thank you. But but in all seriousness, um, there's something pretty insane about some of the arguments at the moment. I mean, I'm quite active on social media and and on Twitter now, which is a a, a pretty horrible place to be at the best of times. Why do you bother? uh, A very specific reason, and it's all about campaigning for the NHS and patients for me. That's the only reason I do it. But, But I get abuse from people... I mean, abuse that is so obscene, I can't repeat it on air, from people who believe so strongly that they should be allowed to do whatever they like and that COVID is an irrelevance, it's 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 fake news, it's a hoax, it's nonsense, our hospitals are empty, that sometimes I have to just throw my phone down. I've had literally death threats from people and rape threats from people for saying please wear a mask, please stay inside, please understand that this disease is real and deadly and it's killing people. And I think that is absolutely astonishing. And one of the things I notice with these people who spew out abuse at NHS staff now is that their focus is always about their rights. It's always about their right not to wear a mask, um, not to be locked down. And, And none of us want to be restricted none of us want to wear a seatbelt when we get into a car but but actually these restrictions if they stop vulnerable people dying then surely we're all decent and kind enough to accept restrictions in order to to save people's lives 
I mean, I can t- I I've read a couple of your interviews, and and you're very, you're not at all happy about lockdown, are you? No, I'm not. I don't I don't like what it's done to us as society. Uh, I think it's it, it it's uh, a very a thing to be entered into very very gingerly. And what what specifically? I don't like the fact that it. That I think that in, intrinsically, human beings are inclined to trust one another and to be nice to one another, and that this encourages us to believe that all other human beings are potentially hostile. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that, and it's really interesting. Um, when you talk to the behavioural scientists who are part of SAGE, the you know group of experts advising the government, they're always at pains to stress that you cannot successfully bully the population into behaving in the way that is most likely to get us collectively out of a pandemic. It just doesn't work if you tr- if you if you bash them and order them. Um, to behave in a certain way, then they will get angry and and won't do what you say. But if you appeal to people's better nature, then and 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 you have people willingly sort of signed up to a collective project for for the good of everyone in society, then that's how things work. And and um, I mean, I guess the alternative to that is to have an incredibly draconian um, authoritarian society, you know, like China, where no one had any free will in terms of what they they did or did not do in lockdown at all um i guess what has struck me about this year is by and large until early summer the population i think was signed up to the restrictions that we we all undertook and there were some key points that changed that and one of those of course was the moment when dominic cummings um, was revealed to have flouted the rules himself, gone off and driven hundreds of miles and then checked his eyes on a day trip with his kids um, because it, apparently the rules applied to everyone else but but not him. And the moment you show the public that some people think they're above the rules, it's just disaster because you're going to sow, sow resentment and... Um, lack of compliance and people will just decide fine they're not going to obey the rules either I'm quite surprised there hasn't been public unrest and a higher suicide rate aren't you? Incredibly so I mean sometimes I think there there are some people who assume if you're a doctor like me and, and, and you're urging urging a, a, a robust lockdown as quickly as possible that somehow means that we are oblivious to the incredible pain and suffering that lockdown has uh, resulted in in all kinds of ways so um, I'm also very surprised that the data show there hasn't been a spike in suicide rates I'm, I'm astonished um, uh, you know, the, the anxiety and distress among children is is incredible. And that's even for children who are in, you know, sort of um, uh, environments at home where they can do homeschooling. They've got 
the laptops and things um, that enable them to keep in touch with their friends. There are so many millions of people in Britain whose entire way of life has been overturned and in some ways devastated by by the restrictions of lockdown um, and you'd have to be callous in the extreme not to be aware of how awful that is um, and I think that the tragedy about this situation we're in is that there's no there is no good way through this every way through this has almighty costs and negatives for us as individuals and as a population and 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 all you can do as a government is to be honest with the population about that because that's that's what shows leadership if you try and pretend that you can send the virus packing and squash the sombrero and all have a five-day free-for-all at Christmas all you do is raise people's hopes and then dash them and make them feel more miserable and, and, and worse because yet again everybody is is filled with hope that actually we're, going, we're almost through this and no we're not it was all nonsense. Can I ask you about one other thing that bothers me it's that young people in particular are having to pay a very high price here in order that old people with whom you're most professionally familiar can survive. Yes, yes, that is a- absolutely true up to a point. Um you ca- you know you 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 cannot pretend that um if you're a student or a young adult facing who knows what degree of of unemployment as we we go into 2021 you can't pretend that the cost isn't horrendous for those age groups um however two things so so first of all although the virus does predominantly affect older people uh right now we are seeing the age groups affected change now whether that's because there's already been a considerable death toll in the 80 plus group I don't know but at the moment we have 20 year olds 30 somethings 40 somethings in intensive care so I have intensive care colleagues um, working in units where every single one of their patients is under the age of 60 and they have got lots of patients in their 30s 40s pregnant women in their 20s in ICU ventilated with COVID so so it's it's not true that younger people aren't affected but more fundamentally I would argue is the fact that um, lockdown although it is absolutely um, terrible for younger people is actually the, the quickest and most effective way to protect everybody so if you lock down early and hard then you should be able to get transmission suppressed quickly and get out of the restrictions earlier. Um, The worst of all worlds is to dither and procrastinate and sort of hope that all the difficult decision making will go away, which is clearly what Boris Johnson has done over and over again, because then you end up with the worst of both worlds. You have one of the world's highest death tolls and the world's worst economic hit from COVID. So unfortunately, um, what we have seen 
in Britain is um, a catastrophic death toll for older citizens and a catastrophic economic hit for younger citizens. So it's a masterclass in how to do everything possible wrong, I, I would argue. Rachel, I don't want to sound callous, but it is the case, is it not, that every winter larger than usual numbers of older people die from flu or something or other. What is so special about this pandemic? So the numbers are of deaths are of a scale that hugely eclipses the death toll from flu most years. Um, so we already have had um, 92,000 deaths from COVID as recorded by cause of death on death certificates this year. And we've never had a death toll from flu that's anything like that. So that's, that's one thing. Um, but more importantly than that, I think um, it is, th is this fundamental argument. So you mentioned earlier um, that Boris Johnson has used the phrase protect the NHS. And we all know that the slogan was stay home, save lives, protect the NHS. Um, that's not a good slogan at all because it's very misleading. We, of course, we don't want to protect an institution for the sake of it. That's, that's nonsense. What we want to do is protect people. This is why trying to minimise transmission is so important. So everything we're doing with COVID is to protect people. It's to protect patients. And if you allow transmission to run rampant, not only are many people dying of COVID, but also our finite NHS capacity is full. It's overwhelmed. So now, if you get knocked down by a car tomorrow and you lie in the gutter waiting for an ambulance to bring you into an intensive care bed in your local London hospital, that ambulance isn't going to come and you're not going to get a bed in intensive care because the hospital and the ambulance service is filled and overwhelmed with COVID patients. So now you're going to die unnecessarily because COVID has overwhelmed the NHS. And that is the crux of what we're trying to do now. So, so lockdown right now is fundamentally about suppressing transmission, but it's also about ensuring that the NHS is still able to do urgent cancer operations, scoop people up from road traffic accidents, and ensure that children, young adults, people of every age get emergency healthcare. Because once a health service is overwhelmed, all those people start to die. I mean, at the moment, you, you, your point, Jeremy, about most people dying from COVID being being old and and and. And I sympathise with that point. You know, if I had to choose between saving a 16-year-old and an 86-year-old, I'd choose the 16-year-old. Um, but what's happening in hospitals at the moment is it is unimaginably horrific for every patient, whatever their age. Nobody is getting proper medical care. And and, it, and it's absolutely tragic. So what, what I've seen in, in palliative care uh, after the first wave was in the summer last year, this this awful wave of patients presenting with cancers that could and should have been picked up early 
but weren't because the NHS was overwhelmed with COVID. And so here they are, very, very young people sometimes with awful terminal cancers for whom we can do nothing now because it's too late. And and that's a consequence of a health service being overwhelmed. So So right now, the things that we're seeing in hospitals are so horrific for for every conceivable kind of patient because once your capacity is overrun everybody suffers whether they're a covid patient or a non-covid patient alike and and it is it is heartbreaking you come home from work I know I do I just cry sometimes I have to pull over by the side of the road and I I just have to stop driving because I'm crying because of what I have witnessed in the hospital that day and and that's not because we're focusing too closely on COVID, it's because the NHS is overrun, because the government allowed transmission to get out of control and didn't have the guts to impose lockdown when it should have been, and it's it's horrific. We always knew that even without COVID, we would inevitably have another winter crisis in 2020 going into 21. Um, The government knew that back in March. They knew that in the summer when they started opening up the British economy and relaxing lockdown. They could have been preparing eight, nine, ten months ago for the inevitable combination of NHS winter crisis plus additional burden from COVID. All the scientists back in the summer were saying we anticipate there being another winter spike of COVID. This didn't catch anybody unawares. We all knew it was going to happen. So what the government could have done was everything in their power to build up a functioning test and trace system. They could have set up a system that made it easy for everybody to self-isolate if they got a positive test. Um, And the only way to do that is to make it financially uh, possible for people on very low incomes to stay at home and not go to work Um, because lockdown doesn't affect everybody equally the pandemic doesn't affect everyone equally if you are socioeconomically deprived you're more likely to get covid you're less likely to be able to stay at home you need financial support none of this was rocket science people were saying this back in april and the government didn't do any of it properly so we careered into winter time with all the inevitable standard but awful winter pressures with a covid calamity on top of that and for me that is absolutely unforgivable because right now there are literally thousands of britons dying of covid and dying of non-covid diseases because the nhs is completely overwhelmed who should not be dying because we should have had a competent government who led and tried to set up all of these systems six months ago and they didn't do it. And that's a dereliction of duty that is the the cost of which can be counted probably in tens of thousands of deaths to come. And it's a disgrace. Jeremy, can I ask you a question? Of course. Are you are you scared of dying? Uh, am I scared of dying? I, I am scared. Dying, yes, not of being dead. 
I think so, yes. I mean, I'm scared of the pain. But I'm, I'm not... Ceasing to exist is a different matter altogether. There's that line in that Keats poem, is it owed to a nightingale to cease upon the midnight with no pain? Yes. Yes. Now more than ever seems it sweet to die. Now, well, I, I'm kind of... I, I, I've always thought that it was a bit wet, but actually I think I, I, I can understand it now. Yeah. I, I always, when I meet patients, I always ask them what they're most afraid of, what they're most worried about. And it's really fascinating, the range of answers to that question. Sometimes it's so far removed from what you would ever imagine someone be, would be frightened about or worried about close to the end. But usually people say what you've just said. They're worried about dying. They're worried about awful symptoms. And um, I think something that's really reassuring for patients is having a very honest conversation about a what it's like for most people to um, approach the end of life and and enter that dying process because it's usually quite predictable and you see very similar patterns. But also um, to 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 help them understand what we're able to do. So. Obviously, legally, assisted dying is is not legal in this country, so we can't do anything with the intention of shortening somebody's life. But what we can do as doctors is, is give a patient whatever they need to alleviate their suffering. So if so, occasionally, a patient will be in, a, in terrible pain and you'll keep giving um, higher and higher doses of drugs, morphine or some other painkiller and you'll have a conversation with the patient along the lines of um, if we if we keep giving you more drugs you may become sleepy some people don't mind that they'd rather be sleepy if their pain was controlled some people are desperate not to be sleepy they want to be awake and interacting with their family say as long as possible and you find out what a patient wants and if a patient says I don't care if I'm so sleepy, I'm unconscious, I just desperately don't want to be in pain. We can keep on giving the doses of drugs that are required to ensure that that patient is comfortable and pain-free and is not suffering. And there's no upper limit in what we can do. And often people find that really reassuring because they fear that we legally will have to turn around and say that's it, you've had the highest dose of morphine you can have and now you just have to suffer until you die and that's just not true. So maybe that will reassure you slightly. I'm definitely a DNR candidate. Yes, good. Although not at the moment. I reckon we could restart your heart if it stopped now. How old are you? I'm old. I'm 70 this year. Spring chicken! In a hospital sense, you're younger than the average age of a hospital patient. It depends how fit you are. I'm not fit enough. I used to be fit. Wow. I'm going to. I'm going to have to leave you. But thank you very much indeed for your time. That was a really interesting conversation. Thanks. I'm sorry if I ranted on a bit. It, it's because of 
the underlying stuff we're seeing. Rant basically. away. Keep ranting. Well, there you are. Rachel Clark, Dr. Rachel Clark, author of Dear Life and most recently Breathtaking, which details her experience of the pandemic. She's not a woman who's afraid of tackling the big issues. Next week, we have the long-promised top spy, David Omond, the former head of GCHQ. Do join us for that. Until then, wash those hands.